Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there is a new developer conference that we wanted to share with you. It is called Devs for Ukraine. It is being held April 25th and 26th. It is a free online engineering conference with the goal to raise funds and provide support to Ukraine. It's actually being put on by remote.com. We're going to be talking up next with Toby a little bit more about remote.com. So I mentioned it's a two-day conference. It's online. Day one is all front-end focused. So there's already a number of big names that are lined up as speakers and presenters. And day two is back-end focused. That's going to include people like Jose Valim and some other Elixir-focused speakers. But it will also include other speakers prominent in the Ruby community and others as well. So they are requesting donations. You determine the amount. And the funds collected by remote during the dev for ukraine event will be evenly divided between eight non-governmental organizations. This looks like a, a really good like conference, even if it weren't spur of the moment. Like this is amazing that they got everyone together like like this. You know, you've got Vue.js core team members, you have some Angular team members, you have some Stripe developers there, you have Dan Abramov from you know React. That's just the front end. On the back end side, you got Aaron Patterson, also known as Tender Love. Can't say Aaron Patterson without Tender Love with a handle like that is so cool. Sandy Metz, of course, our own Jose Valim, and uh, and then Sasha Yurik, like so many good people. Oh, and Tatiana, like we we interviewed her a couple you know episodes ago. This is going to be a good one. So if you can make it, I would definitely consider making time to make make it. It's on uh, April twenty fifth and twenty sixth here in just a couple of weeks. Also, uh, Parker Selbert, the developer behind the Obin Job Processing Library, said that they are, quote, finally putting the work into creating proper guides for Obin. And they're starting with testing, how to test job processing tasks. So we got a link to the PR uh, where they go into it. The, the, the PR has already been merged. It just creates a new set of testing guides in their documentation. We know as a community, I think generally, that that time spent on documentation is like super important. We get the benefit of hex docs, right? Being so well laid out and have the ability to like organize guides. Phoenix Framework was one of the, you know, the first and prominent ones to like really to put the time into these guides. And so it's really nice to see that other libraries, especially job processing libraries like Open and testing is an interesting first topic too, to have a guide on. It's often guides on how to use it. And then there's like no mention of guides on how to test the code that you just wrote. That's really cool to see that they're they're putting in the time uh, in, in guides at all. And then also uh, testing, which is just above and beyond. Anyway, congrats on the effort and, and progress. Yeah, one of the things I just want to mention there is as someone who also works on documentation, I totally recognize that it's it's hard work to do it. It takes a lot of time. And when you're doing that work, you're not actually working on new features in the library. So it looks like, you know, you can kind of get that feeling like, oh, it doesn't look like I'm doing anything, but it really is important. It benefits everyone. So just want to give props to Parker for the, the work. And we do understand and appreciate that there is a lot that goes behind doing guides like this. Writing is hard, but you know, a lot of their guides are already pretty good. So I'm excited to see what they come up with. Next up, Membrane Framework released 0.9.0. They also started a blog on Medium to make it easier to follow the project's development. We talked with a member of the Membrane team in episode 43, if you want to go back and listen to that. The Membrane Framework is for Elixir applications helping to work with streaming media, audio and video. One of the features that they announced in this 0.9.0 release is auto-demand. It sounds like a way to just automatically improve the developer experience. If you're interested in how that works or if you're using it, you can. we'll drop a link in the show notes to that Medium blog post. And next up, Supabase has an interesting update. So we talked with Paul Copplestone in episode 73 about Supabase and how they're actually using Elixir on the back end to bring real-time features to front-end devs who don't want to write their own back end. So they're doing the Next.js kind of crowd and catering to them. So this update isn't so much for us who are already using Elixir and writing our own Elixir backends, but they're doing something I thought was just really interesting. So I have a link to this in the show notes, but they have a GitHub project of Supabase Livebooks. 
So they are releasing a collection of livebook notebooks that developers can use to do various things with their own SUPA-based deployment. I love this kind of use of livebook. It includes some screenshots showing how it can render charts and they're doing some monitoring focused things. I just love that you can use livebook in a way to expose some of those server functionality pieces in a very digestible way, especially when you're talking about trying to bring these features to people who are developers, but they're not really familiar or comfortable necessarily with the back end, or maybe they just don't even want to care about it. That's really interesting to use livebook as like a demo of using a product that is like written in Elixir, but that's not your code, right? <laughs> it's like Livebook is like a, a way to just run some arbitrary code. Anyway, I, it sounds like it's a really cool use. And I love how Livebook is kind of expanding out into these other worlds like this. It's so often we talk about Livebook here, but it's usually in the sense of like interacting with my own app or documenting an Elixir library, right? But this in this case, it's just completely separate from from that. And it's just like, an interactive way of running code against, you know, a feature of some other, you know, website. It's, it's, I don't know. That's pretty cool. I guess what I found most interesting about it was they're taking their own enterprise offering and saying Livebook can be used to give a value add to our system. And there's something that they didn't actually have to do the work to create Livebook or anything like that. So it's just an interesting way to do a value add. So, hey, if you're out there and you're like, we have a system and wonder how Livebook could actually play into our feature set, you know, that's something to look at. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Toby Pfeiffer. Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, Toby, I'm really excited about this one because we've talked about the Benchy library before. And Benchy is this micro benchmarking tool that we can use in Elixir and the Beam. Then there's also some other stuff that you were talking about recently when you announced the latest release of the Benchy library, where you're just talking about why it took so long, some of the things that are just part of the open source lifestyle, I guess, of as a, as a maintainer and a developer. And we'd love to be able to hear more about that. But before we jump into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Well, so I live in the wonderful city of uh, Berlin, where I'm also basically from. Like, if you ask people, I'm not from here, but like I grew up around here, not directly in the city itself. I'm a software engineer. I think like most of you right now, I'm a, a staff backend engineer and remote. So which is always fun to explain to people like, oh, I work at remote, but where do we work? Like, no, no, I work at remote, a company, and I work remotely for them. And <laughs> I'm an Alexi engineer there. And But also sort of like fun fact, it's uh, the first time I ever really work sort of like as a full-time Alexi engineer. And I've only been there, you know, for a year while, you know, Benchy, I think the first commit is from around May 2016 uh, or something. And while, you know, I worked at companies, I've had, you know, sort of like Elixir-related projects or something here and there. Most of it was usually Ruby. And so it's the first time I really get to play sort of like with Elixir Active Phoenix, like full-time on the big project, which is really, really exciting and really, really cool. I would love to hear a little bit about Remote, the company, because they have been in the Elixir space for a long time. They've sponsored things. So I think a lot of people have heard about them, but we, they may not know terribly much about how Elixir is used there or or anything. Is there something you can share? I mean, first, I always like to share, you know, you know, maybe now if, you know, your peers is like, oh, Toby, you got the sales pitch wrong. <laughs> but basically what a remote allows you to do is say you always have this problem if you want to work remotely, that if you want to employ people full time, you basically have to have a legal entity in the country where they live so that you can really hire them as full time employees. And remote just facilitates that process. Now we have legal entities all around the world and sort of like legally speaking, people will be employed by us, but they will actually sort of like work for you. So just enables you. And I think more than 60 countries uh, by now to employ people, which is something that I really, really love. And there's a really, really, you know, cool goal because, you know, we actually help people all around the world get employed and we help people, all, well, we also help companies all around the world employ people. So that's the first thing for me is always sort of like, the business and what are we doing because sort of like personally like i hope i offend no one but here but you know it's sort of like 
edge tracking. It's like, wow, I don't want to get up every day and like, oh, wow, I made ads so fast. So I know I spied more personal information from people to show the more relevant ads. That's just not something I get excited about. Although, you know, the performance uh, implications are really, really interesting there. And so this is something where it's actually sort of like something that I believe something good that we're doing. But more to the technical side, the backend is an Alexi monolith. It's Phoenix, REST API, has a PostgreSQL database, and you know, sort of like that's that's it. Basically, it's it's pretty big. Sort of like the front end is uh, Next.js, React for the ones that don't know that Next.js is actually React under the hood. Yeah, otherwise it's you know fairly standard because our domain is very very, let's say logic and business domain driven. Sort of like because we gotta make all of these very very difficult HR functions work for basically everyone around the world. So if like all of these countries have their own little rules for, you know, what needs to be in the contract, how to employ people, this and that, how to pay people, which is where I uh, mostly work in the employee payments team. And so it's a very, very big challenge, sort of like business logic wise, which is something that I really, really enjoy. That is interesting because you'd have to interface with all of these different government bodies, you know, from all over the world. The way I understand how this works is, so someone wants to say, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an employer based in the US and I want to be able to hire people from all over the world. I could go to remote and I could say, I could hire someone in Nigeria or Germany and they would both be working for remote as contractors, technically, like legally, so that they can have a legal presence in the different geographic location where they are with, with the different government entities. Almost correctly. I mean, they would work for us as full-time employees. That's uh, how we get like sort of like the full-time like benefits and everything. So for instance, in Germany, it's a very, very big difference, especially from like uh, health insurance and everything, whether you're a contractor or full-time employee. And so they'll be full-time employees with us, with our local entity that we have in said country. But then, you know, actually uh, they'll be working um, sort of like for you and also like, be completely associated with you. Like they have no other sort of like let's say, interface uh, with us, other than, you know, the contract is with us and, you know, they usually put in sort of like the sync and leave days into like our platform or everything, but otherwise they're like a full member of your team, of your company. Like, it's not like that. Sometimes people get the sort of like the misconception that we were kind of like an agency that we're like, I don't know, like ThoughtWorks or something where the people work for us and we just lend them out to you. No, 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 like these are your employees. You know, we're just sort of like the contract entity in the middle to sort of like make it all work just to solve the legal problem yeah exactly we just solve basically the the legal problem but we also you know we also provide like benefits if you want to have that so we also try to make stuff better so not only solve the legal problem but also you know make it a good experience for everyone involved and just because we said contractors before we also have a contractor platform which if i'm still up to date doesn't incur any fees so you can also hire contractors through remote and pay them out and the entire world but like I always see the main focus personally as like the full-time employment because that's much harder uh, to set up internationally. We had a guy in Germany and I mean, it wasn't too difficult to have him as a contractor, but full-time was where it was difficult, right? So that makes a lot of sense. That's cool. I mean, especially, you know, as a contractor, you know, I, I was a contractor that was, you know, worked for a company in the U.S. It's like, oh, my God, like, tax-wise, how, how do I do this? Where do the taxes go? Who gets the taxes? And then, you know, all of a sudden, you got to talk to a tax console and everything. And it's really, really scary because, like, I think in the U.S. it's the same. But it's like, oh, my God, like, I don't I don't want to accidentally lie to the tax office. I'm really, really scared of that. <laughs> so, like, every time of these that I don't have to deal with, I'm very, very happy. Yeah, yeah. For, for what it's worth, that that's not unique to uh out of country people either <laughs> even americans are in that same boat <laughs> so that's cool and i i love that elixir is involved and remote is involved in the elixir community so i think that's that's great but we would love to be able to jump into benchy now so maybe you can give a little introduction to what benchy is and why you created it Benchy is just a benchmarking tool with you know my very very good naming skills for libraries so it just tells you, you know, you give Benchy a piece of code or sort of like multiple pieces of code and it will just run them. It will measure how long they take 
to run and then it will give you all kinds of statistics about them. Like, you know, most people only ever look at the average or like, oh, on average, this took 100 milliseconds to execute. But Benchy will also give you more than that. It will give you the median, which for lots of cases will be better, but also gives you the minimum, the maximum. You can configure percentiles. It's all of all of that. It is used or should be used for you to either see like how fast is something, can I get away with this? Or, you know, establish a baseline of like, this is this fast right now, and then do some performance improvements and then measure again, has it gotten better? And I like both use cases. So for instance, there's a part in Benchy where I think for computing the percentiles, where I'm like, ah, well, I could implement this really complicated formula to make it work. Or I could just sort all the values and then go to the point in the sorted uh, list and see what that is. And so I wrote a benchmark and was like, oh, wow, even for a couple of millions, this is just a couple of milliseconds. So like, that's fast enough for my use case. I don't need to implement the fancy algorithm because I know that this is good enough. What I love about that second use case that you described of do a baseline and then see about trying to improve it, like just like you described there, it's like the code can often become less clear when it's becoming more clever to try and really be optimized. And then you can really figure out, is it worth it? You know, without benchmarking, it's like, I might just be adding code that's harder to understand and read and just assuming that it's better. But then if I benchmark it, it's like, oh, actually it's, it's no good. I can just roll that back. I love that use case. Absolutely. And it's really, really crucial. And that also, I mean, already segues us almost into one of the features that Benchy has, because one common problem that I see in a lot of benchmarking tooling is, you know, they run both your scenarios of like your baseline and your improvement, then be like, oh, wow, this one is three times faster. And they're like, oh my God, three times faster is the best thing ever. I'll definitely change it. But what often matters, especially like in the web context, is sort of like, what does that actually mean? Sort of like how how much in time is that faster? So is that 100 milliseconds faster or is that like, you know, 50 microseconds faster or something? Because both can be a free X improvement, especially sort of like in the web context, like any query you make to the database, even the fastest one takes at least a millisecond or something. So if you only do your improvements on like a microsecond level, like no matter if it's 100x or 200x, it doesn't matter for the performance of your web application, like it purely doesn't. And so that's something that people should always keep in mind. So one feature that like relatively late into its lifecycle introduced into Benchy that, you know, right next to this like 5x, 3x, it shows you like, oh, wow, this is a different of, you know, 100 milliseconds or like one second or something so that you can see like, what does that mean in total numbers? They got, uh, you know, slower, faster. Something that comes to my mind is, do people put this in test suite so they can like continue to monitor or is this something that you just do like as you're developing and making sure that you're optimized for your use case? So that is one of the biggest questions ever around benchmarking. And like I've tried to build or had many ideas to improve this. Actually, the first time I ever gave a presentation about Benchy was in Warsaw. And afterwards, uh, Michal Muscala, one of the sort of like Alex and Ecto Torpe, core people and, you know, brilliant person came up to me and asked me exactly about this. And so this was back in I don't know, 2017. And the problem is including it in your test suite and everything is very, very hard because usually the test execution runtime is very, very noisy. There's lots going on on that server. And usually you also have like a noisy neighbor problem where, you know, other stuff that runs on the same server and will always impact the runtimes very, very highly. So really making it a hard rule to fail at that is very, very tough. So one approach that I've seen, I think I first saw, I think Gary Bernhardt do it he would record the benchmark runtimes and he would plot them over time. That way, you know, if you have sort of like one outlier, it's not as bad, but you could always sort of like follow the results over time. And you can see if you're sort of like on a downward or upward trajectory. We even had a Google Sum of Code project where I forget the name right now because I've been bad at maintaining it, but maybe we can find it, put it in the show notes later, where we try to set up sort of like a CI service for this and sort of like Nihao actually built the first version of that on one of these uh, CodeBeam hack days. What's it called? SpawnFest? Yeah, SpawnFest, right. So like Nihao uh, actually built uh, the first version of that for SpawnFest, where it was basically the idea was you would have these benchmarks, but you would run them like separately from tests and at best, like, you know, on dedicated servers, like record these and, you know, report them up and everything. Yeah, that's tough. So 
But so what I normally do is I still commit them to the code base. So I still usually have Benji as a dependency. Then I have a separate benchmarks where I put in these benchmarks and then I write them. I usually use them once or twice, but you know, sometimes it's something that I will run occasionally to see. And what I do, I usually take the console format output and I paste it in as a comment sort of below so that I have some sort of like old baseline. But usually, you know, that's that's just for people to see like roughly how fast did this used to be or was this. If you really, really want to compare it against like a new implementation, you would you should really go and get and you know, check out old version, run benchmark, check out new version, run benchmark, or you know, save it and then do the uh, comparison and sort of like see what's happening. Benchmark results aren't something that you can really share and let that be like universal to everybody because everyone's running this stuff on different spec machines, more cores, less cores, more RAM, less RAM, that kind of stuff. I think I remember running Benchy for a library and what I did was I wrote the results to like my host name, like a file named after my host name. So if somebody else decided to or CI decided to run, you know, these things that they wouldn't, you know, recognize that as a as their baseline. So that's a pretty interesting problem. So a CI service would have to kind of guarantee, you know, that they're running on the same sized, you know, containers and all that kind of stuff for it to be useful. That's pretty cool. Then the punks with the M1s come in and mess up all the numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Those those punks. Yeah. (laughs) Have you heard? I'm sure you have. Have you heard of GitHub's, I think it's GitHub's scientist gem in Ruby? Oh, scientist. I have heard of it, but I don't think... I have used it. I would have to look it up. It could be a pretty cool application for Benchy in the runtime. Did you know someone ported it to Elixir? Is it out there? There's an Elixir library for that too. Oh, nice. Okay, well, here here's the thought. Uh, is that maybe... So Scientist uh, is basically a way to do science experiments, right? It's uh, A-B testing, I think is what it comes down to. And so I'm, I'm curious how an implementation using Benchy would look like in runtime to time a function and still, you know, put out the results and all that kind of stuff. So you have an experiment of A versus B and you just record that somewhere, maybe write a live dashboard page and show the results and plot it out over time. Sounds like a pretty cool feature. If we do the production, that sounds more like uh, application performance monitoring. So it sounds more like something that an APM um, should do. Sort of like the difference there is that usually Benchy, you run sort of like offline on your dev machine because Benchy will run thousands of iterations to get all of the statistical data, which is not something that you would want to run during a live request. You know, you don't want to run the same code with all its side effects and whatnot that many times. So that's you know one of the things how Benchy often gets a bit confused on Benchy, but like benchmarking because it sits there, but then there's application performance monitoring, which does sort of like the same or similar thing, but like sort of on the live uh, runtime, which has lots of, you know, benefits because it works with the real data. You get real traffic and everything, but you only see it after the change has, you know, gone live. And sometimes you want to, you know, see performance before it goes live, which is more where you see uh, Benji. And the other thing that often creates a bit of confusion is profiling. Because people are also like, oh, I'll profile to make stuff faster. And the thing is that usually profiling has a lot of overhead, depending on the profiling method that is used. So like the total execution time isn't the same anymore. And sometimes, you know, especially like I used to do it in Ruby with like a Ruby prof and stack prof, you know, like execution time would balloon. It would be like, I know, 100x or 20x or something. So you couldn't really have the space anymore and see like how much have I actually gotten faster. So I see profiling more as like, you can use it to select sort of like, where are my actual issues when I don't know it? And then you can make it faster. But I would always use benchmarking to establish the baseline and check against it. You mentioned this idea already that we got to be careful about what we're benchmarking because a lot of times with our applications, they tend to be web applications, which are talking to a database. It's not necessarily like 3D rendering where it's a game engine, where it's a different sort of profile and benchmark that you would care about, like frame rates and things like that. The majority of our request time is spent in the database. And that's probably where we would benefit the most is like checking our indexes, checking our queries. Do I have N plus ones? Things like that. So Benchy is, you describe it as a micro benchmarking tool. So maybe we can touch on what that means, micro, and where you feel like this is a good tool for people to reach for and when's the right time. 
I saw that in the show notes and then I saw like, oh, maybe I'm selling Benji wrong, actually. So I put the micro in the name and in the description to highlight that it can benchmark things to a very high precision degree. So for instance, on Linux, we're talking about nanosecond precision, which, you know, isn't always great, but, you know, makes you able to do like enum map of a list of, you know, 10 elements against another sort of like iteration of like some kind of list which enables these kind of things, these really sort of like small fine-tuned things. But you can still use Benchy for like entire web requests or entire things that go an hour long. I think right now our time scaling only goes up to minutes. I don't think I've implemented hours yet, which is not something because it's hard, but just because I've never done it. But you can use it for all of these and Benchy will give you correct and good results. So the micro just comes from like, hey, we can do this for even like very, very fast things so that you can see the difference in there. So something that, especially when I learn a language, I like to do benchmarks, which maybe to some people sounds weird, but you know, I really love doing benchmarks and always have. And it's always a way also for me to find out what is fast in a language, because that often corresponds to what's idiomatic in that language, because that case is often optimized. So I think one of the first bigger benchmarking posts that I did in Elixir was about a tail recursive functions versus non-tail recursive functions were actually, to much to my surprise and that of other people, sometimes for certain use cases, the non-tail recursive function was faster than the tail recursive function, for instance. Sort of like that kind of uh, shenanigans, which is what you can do. And that's the hard part, being that precise and everything around it. Something that takes longer is, is not... It's not that hard. So, you know, please also use benchmarking for complete services. I use Benchy for benchmarking, basically database performance for like, you know, just firing up an active query all the time and like the old query, the new query, or like before and after the index, just to have results to uh, compare there. Jose Valim has mentioned how he uses Benchy as part of his workflow when he's working on Elixir itself. And I was wondering if you could share any of that and how that fits in. The one thing that Jose once told me was sort of like, they were almost getting into sort of like the new, the new release, the 1.1, and where it was like, hey, Toby, you know, like Bench is great and, you know, use it uh, for improvements on Elixir a lot, which, you know, as an open source maintainer is, you know, one of the best things that people can tell you, like, hey, I use this tool and it's really, really useful to me. It makes it really happy, it makes it really validated for all the work you put into it. And so then he said, you know, the way that I usually use Benchy as you know, a benchmark it, and then sort of like I just run a profile right after. So he sees like how fast is it, and then he digs into like where is most of the time spent, and then he runs the benchmark again, and then the profile after. So like this is like the iterative process that uh, Jose uses, which is where this idea for profile after came in because well, like, hey, Toby, I have the script that basically sort of like just takes the same functions and then, you know, put it in there. But like, I feel like, you know, that's maybe something that Benji could do. And that is uh, one of the amazing things when you work with the community, because I would have never thought of that idea because frankly, I don't do uh, profiling that often or that, that hardcore unless I really, really need to. So it's not part of my core workflow, but I can absolutely see how this is like a very well and very sort of like good workflow. So I was like, okay, you know, let, let's implement that. And then we did. Oh, well, Pablo did. So I think that's a good point to talk about what came out in this latest new release, which this feature you mentioned with the profiling after was part of that release. There are two main features that you announced. Why don't you give us an introduction to what those are? One is the profile after, which I think we talked about enough now, although I can say it basically uses the uh, mixed tasks that come built into Elixir. So that uses fprof, eprof, and cprof, which are the different sort of like profiles that are also built in with Erlang, which do various things. I think cprof does a call count, and I think eprof and fprof do varying degrees of sort of like time counts, not exactly sure. That's what that just, you know, uses and relies upon. And you can do sort of like, let's call it the Devalim flow of benchmarking. And the next one actually is relevant to a discussion that we had earlier, but I didn't want to segue into it already. And the next one is measuring reductions. And so we usually, when we talk about benchmarking, talk about time measurements, and that's also what we've talked about uh, so far. But Bench can also measure memory consumption with the one very big caveat that right now it only measures the memory consumption of 
the one process that your function is executed in. Sort of like it doesn't go and look at sort of like all the actor workers and whatnot. So it only uses that one thing. And so also if you spawn a new process, it also won't be uh, in there and stuff. So that's one caveat. But that's very cool because oftentimes, you know, memory can be a very big bottleneck, especially if you work with, you know, large data sets from your database, you know, memory can actually be what kills your server and not, you know, the long response time or well, the long response times as a result of, you know, that memory, because once you go into swap, it's basically game over most of the times for most machines. And then reduction counting is one of these other ones where I would say came from the community as also basically one of the reasons why they weren't in 1.0. So 1.0, I always thought of it like, that's all the features that I personally wanted in Benji so that I can say that Benji is complete to some degree. And so afterwards, I turned my attention a bit more to these other ones. And reduction counting was brought up in the Benji channel on the Alexis Slack, which is very empty. <laughs> Almost no one listens to me there. Uh, but like, you know, this one person came along and was like, hey, you know, couldn't bench implement reduction counting. I was like, uh, you what counting? Like, <laughs> no idea what reductions were. So I was like, what is this thing? I opened an issue and then I think probably either over my TDL or Mihao uh, came along and actually was like, oh, this is what reductions are. And you can, you know, read more and sort of like this thing. And so I first had to learn about like, what are reductions? And basically, I think so, like the most basic definition that I'll probably somehow get wrong is it's one function call. It's just a, and since, you know, it's a functional programming language and there's no loops, you know, almost everything is a function call on the beam. And so one function call is one reduction, more or less. So it's just a measure of like how much work uh, did something do. It doesn't necessarily say how much work a function did, but since each function calls another function to a certain degree, that's basically how it works. So it's a very sort of abstract measure of how much work has been done. And the beam itself uses this for scheduling. So it says like, you know, you process, you have like 2000 reductions now and upon every entry to a function or something, it's checked, you know, has it gone over sort of like it's allotted number of reductions and then like, okay, you can still running or otherwise we'll switch the schedule to another process. So how is this useful? <laughs> and it's useful for the, the CI or the test case because reductions are stable. So they're not influenced by the machine you're running it on. Like, I think they might be influenced by the operating system or like the concrete beam implementation to a certain degree. But otherwise, if I run it here on Linux and like on another Linux machine, even if it's much slower, it will have the same reduction count. So that means if you have functions that you think are really, really performance critical and you don't want them to add any more sort of like work on a theoretical level, you could say like, okay, run these with Benji and also just run them once, maybe. And then, you know, this is the reduction count that I expect. And then you can make an assertion that we should never go over that reduction count. And that's a way in which you can assert that, you know, no significant work was added to it. There's, you know, there's some difference between operating systems. So you got to build in some leeway and it also sometimes changes on new Elixir, new Elling versions, because, you know, somebody added like a function call somewhere or something. But that's basically something that I believe they're good for. I did not know that the reductions were stable. That's interesting. I love that idea. Like, could you talk? We were just talking about CI servers and the different amounts of competition for resources or an M1 chip. All these different things can totally throw off the clock time about how much time was spent doing the thing. But reductions, that's, that's really cool. I like that. Uh, the one, I mean, caveat is that. You know, it never sort of like relates one to one. Like I'll see, I probably have an example somewhere, probably have it in the readme for the reductions, but there you can, for instance, see that, I don't know, the time difference is 1.8x, but like the reduction difference is just 1.3x or something. So it doesn't completely hold up, but like generally speaking, at least like broadly speaking, it does hold up. You explained before that memory measurement happens on that particular process that is executing the function. So how would you benchmark something like a flow, like a gen stage or a flow or a Broadway kind of thing, like something that is designed to spawn processes to consume work? And is there is there a concept of like measuring a supervision tree that, that you know, that executes a function? Not yet, no. So... You can still look with time measurements because time measurements is still the same. That's not bound to processes. 
like that, but random memory measurements and reduction count measurements are both tied to a single process. And the way to approve that, yes, would either be to go through sort of like a whole supervision tree or something, or just to look at the beam as a whole. Like, I'm not sure if you can get reduction count statistics for the beam as a whole, but I believe you can, and I'm sure you can get them for, for memory, but it just makes everything much, much harder. So just so you know that specifically for memory measurements, that was one of the hardest things we ever had to implement. And actually, um, Devin sort of like distilled the knowledge that we gained from that into a very cool talk about sort of like how does memory measurement on the beam actually work, because we learned a lot through that. And so what we actually need to do is we also need to gather and collect uh, garbage collection events because, of course, you know, garbage collection happens, but that is part of the memory consumption of that process. So we need to take that into account. And like one bug that we really had for the longest time, because, you know, by the way, memory measurements are also stable. You know, as long as you don't have any randomness in there, it will always consume the same part of memory. And that's how we found that our implementation was wrong because it wasn't stable, you know, we had like slight difference. It was like, oh God, where is the bug? And then actually a piece of sort of like university education from me came in clutch at some point because we looked through sort of like the, the events and like we had this one event that had all memory, but then there was, I think, a old gen or like old memory count or young gen. I was like, oh wow, ah, we're doing sort of like generational garbage collection. So maybe, you know, this one number doesn't include everything, but, you know, we also need to add this other number. And then, you know, we did that because, you know, generation gap collection is both a young and an old generation, and they're treated quite differently. I was like, oh, wow, that, you know, that actually fixed it. No, then, then it was stable. So it was, I mean, early documentation often isn't the best. So it took us really a while to figure the whole thing out. And we had a race condition where I think we started a process too early before we took a measurement or something else like that, where we actually needed to go to, I think, the Erlang core or Elixir mailing list or something to point out there's a minute, you know, race condition over there where, you know, the allocation of that memory might or might still make it in, although it shouldn't. It's like, oh, well, that good spot. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to pretend I understood all that generational garbage collection stuff, but... <laughs> generational garbage collection. <laughs> so, I certainly have uh, a lot of that. You, you mentioned somebody that is important to the community, I think, is Overmind DDL. I don't actually remember their real name, but I just wanted to throw a, a quick shout out to them because they've been like very instrumental in like the Elixir community and Erlang community and just like so knowledgeable, helpful, friendly, like... I ideal citizen, you know, of the internet, I feel like. So quick shout out to to, to you, Overmind. Thanks so much for all the help you've given. Oh, please, definitely. No, sorry, I need to go in there because, you know, that was really one of the people who was like the, the most supportive of sort of like Benchy in you know, sort of like all its lifetime, you know, one of sort of like open issues about stuff or like let, just leave very, very helpful comments about stuff that I didn't know how to do or just be like, oh, well, you need like a big Windows server to run this on. Like I, if you want, like I can def, I can give you this or like, oh, this is my output for this one command on like a Windows server that I maintain. And I'm like, okay, thank you. That helps us, you know, build the feature. So like really one of the, I think he has like one or two commits maybe on Benchy, but you know, the contribution to Benchy is much, much bigger than sort of like that number of commits. Overmind DL1, that's it. I'm sorry. So, and then the other person, of course, you mentioned him already, Devin Estes, like big, big contributor to this. So since Jose William uses this, it sounds like he uses this during development of Elixir. Has the opportunity or question ever presented itself? Like, is does Elixir core need a benchmarking library like this? Is, is this something that would ever be merged in? First off, just for Devin really quickly, Devin is not just a contributor. Devin is like sort of like my co-maintainer, which is, you know, he started contributing with both from Berlin. And, you know, we actually once, I think around Benchy version 0.6, we changed the internal structure uh, of it quite a bit. And that was just, you know, Devin and I getting together at my home and just talking about names for like two hours until we were <laughs> happy with how we named things. So like Devin is a very, very big, like, Contributor, like contributor is an understatement for like how big Devin is uh, for Benji. Co-maintainer then it sounds like. Exactly. Huh? Yeah, I just, exactly. So I just want to, to throw that out there. And the other question is a question that I never asked and was never asked, but someone once relayed an answer from Jose to me, which is basically, hey, Benji works fine as it is. It's sort of the accepted standard as like a benchmarking package. And so like we have 
nothing or little to gain from including it into Elixir Core. People can go there and they can know where to find it and it can softly evolve at its own pace. I think the argument is the same for me and names today. Um, there was the uh, property-based testing library that Elixir Core built. And at first, it was supposed to be integrated into Alexa Core, but then they were like, no, it's actually better if it's just a separate library and then it can evolve by itself. And I agree with that. Stream data. It also gives me the opportunity. So, I mean, I think I'm a bit more hardcore on maybe semantic versioning and everything right now than most people in the Alexa community because I'm like, okay, I released 1.0 and it worked on these Alexa versions and these Erlang versions. I want to keep it working on these Alexa and these Erlang versions, which I think is like, I think 1.6. As maybe sort of like the oldest one uh, that we support, and I want to keep that supported until we maybe hit two. Oh, I'm not sure how long I can keep up with this because I already in this year I already got to be like, okay, you know, don't run this, <laughs> don't run this, <laughs> because like the libraries don't work with it anymore. But it's also really cool because that enables you to go back all the way to Elixir 1.6 with Erlang. I don't know. 19, I think, or 18, or something like that. Be like, okay, this was this fast back then. And now with the same Benji version, you know, run it on, you know, this thing and see how fast it is. Yeah. And since you named it, you were so kind in naming it after what it does. I think it's also really easy to find. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with your announcement of the new release of Benji, you also included this discussion about why it took so long. And really, when I read that, it kind of spoke to me because you were talking about some of the challenges of being an open source maintainer. You also mentioned how like remote where you work is your first full-time Elixir job. So if you look at your GitHub, you see that you still have and maintain a number of Ruby packages too. So it feels like, wow, you, you are in two ecosystems actively. You're in Ruby and Elixir. And you have a lot going on just with the maintenance of these completely different kinds of things. I remember when I switched to from Ruby to Elixir, I was like, this is a line in the sand. There is no going back. I am like cutting ties and I really have not been involved in the Ruby community. So it's nothing against the Ruby community, but that's just, I made a mental break. I wanted to hear about some of why you felt it took so long and some of the challenges that you encountered as a maintainer. I still to this day run the Ruby user group in Berlin, which I think by November this year, I will have been running for, I think, 10 years. So since I was a student, but yeah, uh, back to the challenges. I mean, time is always a big thing. And one of the things that we didn't talk about this release, which is basically the reason why the release was so delayed is that there was a bug in Benchy and that bug was Mac related. And if, <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I absolutely hate Macs. I have my own hashtag, Toby on a Mac, where I just complain about all the stuff that goes wrong with the Mac all the time. And like, I would never ever buy an Apple product to look like for myself, which brings us to one of the problems with this, right? So this works fine, worked fine on Windows, this worked fine on Linux, but it didn't work on Macs. Now be me, be in my apartment and be like, okay, I, there seems to be this bug with Mac that I just found because I found like some blog posts. Like I'm always happy when I see, you know, benchmarking blog posts and Alex, I'm like, oh, do you use Benchy? Cool. Like I just saw this very weird result from it where it was basically a lot of the things had, I think, sort of like three zeros in the end. So it was like the average wasn't like, no, not the average, but the minimum was, was exactly like 1,000. And then the maximum was exactly 7,000 or something, which seems wrong because what are the odds of, you know, hitting that? So it was like something something is off here, something is wrong with this thing. And so like I opened an issue and stuff, but I don't have a Mac to check this out. You know, like my, my partner does have a Mac, but, you know, when I'm on my computer, she's usually on her computer. So it's, you know, really hard to be like, hey, you know, give, give me your Mac. I want to, you know... I want to do something and I also would need to install Elixir on there and everything. So that great. And I think by the time Devin had also switched to a Linux computer and also didn't have a Mac anymore. So like, how do you debug this? And so a lot of time goes by and it's also kind of stressful in the sense that one of the core promises for me of Benchy is it's correct, right? So like it gives you the correct results. That's what Benchy does. And so, for instance, if you look at my other open source, like the one thing that I do in Ruby is SimpleCov, which is the code coverage tool in Ruby. And its core promise is it gives you the right, you know, coverage percentage. And so that was a bit 
nerve-wracking to see that like somebody I gave them wrong results. Like the code that I wrote gave them wrong results. And they published a blog post and that blog post has wrong results. So that gives you a bit of sort of like anxiety, I guess, about because like there's this big thing that you're going to be proud of and people are using it and it's broken and you don't have an easy way to fix it. And then also sort of like debugging and solving that issue was very, very hard because like if you follow the issue on GitHub about this there now at some point, I think there's a post by me, okay, like, I tried this out again and like, I can't reproduce the bug anymore. So sort of like, it gives me the, you know, correct and astute measurements. Now like, what do I do? And it went all the way to finding a bug in Erlang itself, because you can get, I think it's a system OS monotonic clock, monotonic time, monotonic time clock or something like that, where it gives you the resolution that the clock is in. And that resolution was actually wrong. <laughs> so like, you know, I need to talk with the Erlang people around this. And it became this whole sort of like bigger thing. And then, you know, how to get a Mac to like fix it and whatnot. So that already adds a little of stress. And then, you know, I started working at Shopify and I had a Mac. So I was like, oh, wow, you know, I should, you know, go fix this and go check this out now. But, you know, especially the first couple of months in a big new company, very, very stressful, you know, it's like so much going on. It's very hard to get the time and energy to actually go and dig into it. And at the same time, I knew the bug was kind of big. Like I knew I couldn't fix it in an hour. I knew I couldn't fix it in two hours. So I knew it would take me probably at least four hours or six hours to like sit down, understand what I have to implement and fix it. And I knew that sort of like, if I would just do that in sort of like four, five, one hour chunks, it would almost never get it done because I really need that concentrated piece of mind time to sit down and fix it. That also like not having the time to fix it because there was just never enough time to do it. And then, you know, time went on, I got problems with my hands, which means that for, you know, almost a year, I didn't do any open source. And that then, you know, tacked onto that. And with it also sort of like the guilt keeps piling up sometimes a little bit because as I say, you know, this is one of the core promises and it also makes you almost shy away a bit from the project in the sense that, oh, I could do this cool thing on Banshee, you know, I could implement this cool feature, but I would feel guilty about it because I personally believe that fixing that bug is the most important thing that I could possibly do for the project. And so nothing else that I would do, I should actually do, which also takes away some joy of the project, which is one of the things that's very hard to balance because, you know, one hand, it's my hobby, you know, like I, I do this for fun. Like it sounds weird for people, but like I have fun writing benchmarks and I have fun improving my benchmarking library and like, you know, fitting it to my needs. But I didn't feel like I could do that anymore because there was this one glaring bug that I didn't have the time, the energy and or the resources to really, really fix, which is not a great place to be in. And so like, I was very happy when sort of like finally my arms got better so I could finally do some programming again. And I had like a weekend where I was like, okay, we're not doing much this weekend. I can sort of like Saturday to sort of like get my energy back. And then sort of like on Sunday, I can sit down for six hours or something and like just work on this, and fix it. I mean, okay, I thought I was going to sit down for three hours and fix it and turn up to six, you know, how these things go. But, you know, you know a bit of that in advance. Toby, one of the things I really appreciated about you being transparent in that blog post was just kind of talking about the, the challenges that you experienced, you know, is that desire for this is the core promise. This is what I commit to with this project. And I'm not able to deliver that. And that kind of cascades into these other problems of not feeling like I can work on it in these other ways. And I think a lot of us as developers, we struggle with that same kind of feeling too, especially if we're doing anything that's open source. Or we have a side project that maybe a few people are using and we can just get into that desire to be perfect. And that can in some ways cripple us. So I just really appreciated you being open and candid about that because it's it's something that I think a lot of us just deal with. And sometimes we silently deal with it and we just think, oh, it's just me. I'm just not good enough to be able to do this kind of a thing. And, and that's not the case. So I appreciate you sharing all of that. Thank you. And I mean, it's... It's almost one of the places where it's still, let's say, better, because at least at that point, let's say, I mean, what means better? It's still only with you. I mean, the other thing that often comes into mind when you're sort of like you're absent from an open source project for such a long time is sort of like, how do others observe that? So 
it doesn't happen with Benji, or I don't worry about Benji as much because, as I said, you know, for one zero was basically done for me. I mean, that measurement accuracy, like that sucks. But you know, otherwise, you know, I'm kind of fine leaving it alone. But it gets harder when you know, for instance, we go to simple cough because there's always stuff changing in the Ruby ecosystem, and there's stuff that is breaking, or you know, need new features, and lots of more people like rely on that. I don't know. It has like. I don't know, 270 million downloads or something versus, you know, Benji with like 2.5 million or something. Is it like a really core piece? And quite honestly, whenever, you know, for whatever reason, I don't work on it for a time, there's a bit of this reluctance to go back, just a pure little bit of fear that there's someone somewhere that goes like, oh, why the hell isn't this updated? Is this package that? Like, should like all of this sort of like negativity that often goes towards open source maintainers and just say, you know, sorry for cursing, but I absolutely hate that. You know, like not with me. I remember one particular instance where on one of Josie's old projects device in the Ruby ecosystem, sort of like an authentication library, somebody would go in and was like, oh, why doesn't this library support this easy thing? It's like, totally didn't want to. I saw that issue and I just, you know, I just explored what log takes. Like, hey, this is open source. You don't have to use it. These people don't owe you anything, you know, just stop, you know, use something else, write your own library, I don't care, you know, just don't harass these maintainers, which, you know, just thank me afterwards, you know, closed the issue and was like, hey, you know, like, go where you belong and like, it's fine. But, you know, these things happen way too often, like, you know, thankfully it has never really happened to me. So like, even on Simple Cough, even if I was gone for like, you know, a couple of months, never happened to me, but there's still always a bit of that fear. And then, you know, it's something that, you know, is not fun to deal with. One of the things that we really didn't get to dig into, and I think getting some perspective there on the open source aspect that you do this for fun, you know, and then the challenges that you had around that. But one of the things it kind of reminded me we didn't really get to is what motivated you to create Benchy in the first place? So the first thing is I love benchmarking. So if you look on my blog, I run a long running series of just, you know, Ruby benchmarks, benchmarking different Ruby implementations against each other. So if like, I enjoyed it. It's really fun and interesting for me to find out. So, you know, naturally for me, once I started doing Elixir and I think like the end of 2015, I was like, okay, what's their benchmarking wise? And then oh, I got a problem. I want to benchmark something, maybe like Terracross function or whatever wanted to benchmark. I looked around and I didn't quite like the, the solutions. Um, at the time, there was a library called Benchfellow and I felt like it was missing something. So it, for instance, like small things, it didn't have any names for the columns that it was presenting to you. So you had to guess what are all these values that it's presenting to me. And there's one thing that I really, really like, which you see in Benchy as unit first value, which is not present the average, but present IPS, iterations per second. The reason I like it is it's the inverse basically. So that means if you chart it on a graph, higher is better, which is more intuitive, generally speaking. And so I made pull requests to add those to Benchfeller. And while I did those, I also looked at the Benchfeller code and, you know, like no disrespect to the original authors, of course, but there was lots of, there was commented out code everywhere around like memory measurements that, you know, somebody built and then they were commented out was still in the code. And it was very little tests and everything. And so, but, okay, I was like, you know, let's not create your own thing, right? You know, let's, you know, let's contribute to the ecosystem and everything. And I opened these pull requests and I don't know, after there was for two weeks, there was no reaction to them, which, you know, especially nowadays, I can have more understanding for, you know, back then I was more like, I know, maintainers, you know, don't get back. And now having been a maintainer for even longer, I understand that more. But I was like, okay, you know, if nobody's reacting, you know, I'm going to build my own thing. And sort of like the initial idea was just to recreate benchmark IPS from Ruby, which is sort of like the standard benchmarking tool in Ruby. And I've already had experience because I actually had to write my own benchmarking tool in Ruby because benchmark IPS does like a little mistake that also Benchy, of course, now doesn't do, which is benchmark IPS first runs all the warmups uh, for all the functions, and then it runs all the real measurements. The problem with that is that if you are on a highly speculative jitting runtime, as uh, certain versions of the JVM, especially the GraalVM from Truffle Ruby, is sort of like different optimizations happen in between. So like it could actually be de-optimized again. So, you know, the optimal thing is to run the warm-up and then right after run the function that you actually measure and then, you know, run the next warm-up and the next function. So always to run them together and also do know that was the other mistake it did, or benchmark IPS does, in my opinion, is it does a statistics calculation 
after the warm-ups already, like a small one, and then the real measurements, which can also, because all of a sudden you have a division that includes float numbers or something, which can cause another de-optimization, which causes the performance measurement to be worse again. So I had some experience, but like otherwise I wanted to do benchmark ideas, basically. And then I was like, oh, well, no, I'm writing my own benchmarking library. So, you know, let's, you know, do all the things that I wish that benchmark APS could do, but didn't. And that is usually my benchmarking flow. So, for instance, in Ruby, when I benchmark with benchmark IPS, I would take all the results, I would copy and paste them into a spreadsheet, and I would, you know, manually create graphs from that in, like, you know, Google Spreadsheets or whatnot. So, you know, let's have a CSV export. Let's... Let's have that so that you know I don't need to copy and paste the values. And then it's like, oh wow, I could also do an HTML report where I have you know fancy graphs and everything. So wow, let's have like a concept of formatter so that I can run multiple formatters at once. I can have all of these things. And so I basically went through and kind of sort of like optimized my own process flow or something or something that oh god I forgot his name. Dave or something said before that, you know, you can compare benchmarking results between different machines because, you know, they have a different number of memory, different number of cores, different operating system. And it's like, yeah, that's very important to me. That's why always in my benchmarks, I included that to say like, okay, this is the machine I ran this on. So what if, you know, Bench would just print out all the system information all the time? So print out number of processors, speed, the operating system, memory and stuff, the Elixir, the Golang version that it was run on. So I always wanted to optimize it so that if somebody just sort of like copy and pasted all of the results of like a Benji benchmark run, you would have the most information that I could give you to accurately sort of like rerun and represent this benchmark. And so over time, sort of like all of these features well, because I needed them, like another one is, for instance, perhaps the most intricate system is the hook system, which, you know, if you look at the at the readme, it takes up, I think, half the readme, and I wrote it like two weeks or something. It was one of the most complicated, intricate systems I ever designed and implemented. But that is there for many specific reasons. But one of them is, for instance, that in typical benchmarking tools, also benchmark IPS, it's somewhat hard to sort of like first get a collection from the database and then do some kind of operation on the collection without the database fetching time having an impact on the measurement results. So like the measurement results would be wrong. And so you can use hooks to exactly do that. You can do it before each hook to like get some collection from the database and that time will not be measured, but it's then passed on to your benchmarking function. And then only that part of the collection is actually measured. And so it's... It's my own little fun sort of like benchmarking tool that optimizes away my manual work to tie to point where I'm very, very proud of it, where I'm saying like, you know, this is the best benchmarking tool like I've ever seen in sort of like any programming language. And I would really, really like to have it in more programming languages, basically. And I love that you highlighted that hooks feature. So I have a link to the docs in the show notes because I love the idea that, you know, you're acknowledging a lot of our data comes from the database. So in order to really be sure that we're measuring what we want to measure, you know, sometimes we might be pulling a bunch of data out and then running a bunch of calculations, maybe they're business calculations and determining whatever it takes to derive our answer. But we don't actually want to muddy it with the database time because that can really vary, right? Like there can be a lot of variability just in the database performance. And that's really not what we're trying to focus on. So I love that you even show how to do that. That's great. It's glad that I was actually thinking about doing like a Twitter poll or something it's like, hey, does anybody use the host feature? Or because you know it took me all of that time to implement it, and it's also some, I don't know, let's say technical depth in the sense that well, not so really technical depth, but just complexity. So, for instance, the the profiling feature as we first or as Pablo first implemented it didn't account for hooks. And so that's something that I found out before the release. So I needed to like patch and redo the profile feature to actually work with hooks and then actually found out it doesn't to a single point because the mixed tasks in Elixir don't provide you with the return value of the function, which is something that hooks need for the after each function because it gets the return value of the function so that you can do something with it, such as, you know, I don't know, kill a gem server or like close some connection or whatnot or do some kind of cleanup based on the return value of the function. And so I actually also got another patch into Elixir to fix that. But yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of work maintaining the hook. So I hope, you know, somebody out there, please. You don't have to use hooks if you don't need to, but I hope somebody does finds it very helpful. 
Yeah. If you're out there and you're using hooks, <laughs> let Toby know and, and say thank you and buy him a coffee. <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, Toby, I really enjoyed our talk. And unfortunately, we're out of time. If people want to follow you online or maybe follow the project, where should they go to do that? The easiest thing about me is just pragtop.info. So like all my social, my socials and all my connection information is up there. Project, just plain old GitHub, give it a star, give it a follow or whatnot. You can always reach out on the Benji channel in the Alexia Lung Slack. I don't think there's been a message on there other than ones written by myself for about like two years or something. But I also have Benji as a highlight word on the Elixir Lung Slack. So whenever I check in, you know, I'll sometimes get notification that somebody mentioned Benji. But yeah, I think those are the easiest. But in generally speaking, I'm most active on Twitter. So, you know, reaching out to me via Twitter or GitHub issues is usually the most efficient way to get to me. Well, thank you again, Toby. I really appreciate it. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.